2: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. How the heck are you doing today? This is Ray Harkins. You are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. In case you accidentally downloaded this, like, I, I don't know why I have to set up the show like a radio show, but just like, hey, thanks for tuning in here. You downloaded a podcast like completely intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you know it's kind of the uh the the familiarity of like the intro where it's like i know all the podcasts that i listen to where it's like it's nice to be able to be like oh yeah here's here's the host lead me into the show yeah so i don't know do you like it i email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com i love to hear from people so what do we got this week we have rob pennington who is a, a a hardcore legend in my mind, and I know in many of your minds as well. He uh, sang for a band called By the Grace of God, also played in Endpoint, also played in Black Cross, Black God. He is a machine when it comes to playing in bands. And uh, the Louisville hardcore slash independent music scene is something I've always been really fascinated with because uh, I got keyed into it you know, relatively early on in my, my punk and hardcore life, especially with the ever looming presence at that time of initial records who existed in the Louisville area and they had great catalogs and just like, there were so many great bands that were coming out from there at that particular time. And I just felt like I was like, wow, why is all this stuff coming out from Louisville? It's just so cool. So anyways, Rob came on the show and it was great, but I got to tell you about some other things first, first of all, subscribe to the show. Okay. I know I've been kind of harping on this recently, but uh, it's a big deal when you subscribe to the show and you get, A new episode of this thing, download it directly to whatever podcast catcher you use, and uh, it just helps out the show, okay? So that way you're not missing any of the the fine, fine episodes I'm just dropping hot in your feed, your podcast feed. So please do that. And Rockabilia.com. if you have not ordered from them by this time, I've been bothering you for over a year, and you haven't done it yet? Come on. They've got half a million items, all legit licensed high quality stuff you're not going to be seeing these horrible horrible bootlegs off of you know ebay amazon all that stuff like i I i've fallen victim to it before and i can't tell you how bummed i am or i'm like oh man i found this rad piece of merch ordered it one wash done Rockabilia is not that company and they are great people it's a small independent run business based out of minnesota super ship super quick shipping times that's hard to say fast. Uh, and they're just great partners. So PC Jabberjaw, that is the code you can use to get 10% off your order. PC Jabberjaw, dive in there, buy yourself some stuff, buy some friends, some stuff, just, you know, be uh, a gift that keeps on giving year after year by you just, you know, maybe you buy a thousand dollars worth of merch and you give it to your friends over the course of the next three years. You'll be like the favorite of everybody. So thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support. I always appreciate it. And I know that uh, other people do that listen to this show as well. And, um, what do I have going on as well? Uh, my life feels really chaotic right now because, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on. I'm going to New York next week and, uh, for work stuff. And then later on in the month of March, I am going to be uh, going on tour in Japan, which will be amazing and incredible, but it's just always, you know, when you're, we're planning for trips, it's always kind of stressful where it's like, okay, I got to make sure all the stuff's okay at home. i got to make sure, uh, you know, everything's all lined up appropriately. And, uh, since I am a person who likes to take care of things, I, uh, you know, that falls on me. And so sometimes it's a little bit stressful, but, uh, it'll all be fun stuff and you will still be getting episodes. I know you were really concerned. You're like, Ray. You can't be traveling because you can't be not dropping episodes. Don't worry. I got it all taken care of. And, uh, please stay tuned to the very, very end of the show because I will be announcing all of March is a themed month and I love themed months and I know that you do as well. So stay tuned to the very, very end of the episode. Stay tuned. Gosh, keep using all this radio vernacular. It's ridiculous. But anyways, Rob Pennington, was a spectacular guest, and he came on via Josh Robbins, who is uh, plays in a band called Late bloomer, also lives in uh, North Carolina. Um, Rob Pennington recently moved to north carolina, so that 's how I got connected with with Rob from that connection. And, um, it was, uh, I, I was a little bit nervous because Rob Pennington, like he kind of loomed large in my life. Like I just, I'd never met him before. We had never really run across each other. Uh, I never got to see by the grace of God. Uh, I really got into them, you know, like when when they released that perspective record and, um, yeah, so he just kind of was like this, this figure that kind of like existed out there. And when I was able to uh, hop on the phone with him, it was great, which I knew it was going to be, but i just like it when those uh those those expectations i have of people are uh met and delivered where it's like yes you are a great human and that's what all of my friends have said about you so you fall right into that i love it anyways here's rob and i will talk to you after the episode is over And it was, uh, you know, so I'm I'm 38, so you know, definitely in the wheelhouse of the you know mid 90s hardcore explosion. And uh, it, it was only after I got into uh, guilt via you know Victory Records that sure. I that I recognized how like incredibly fertile the Louisville music scene was, and like just how diverse the sounds were that were coming from that area. And then you know, Endpoint came into my life after that. And I specifically remember hearing about the like massive shows from, you know, these bands that rivaled the shows that happened on both the coasts. Cause you know, you always hear about big shows in LA or New York city. Um, yeah. and I realize this is probably like a pretty big question to start things off with, but you know, did you feel that like most bands in the Midwest had to work, I guess, harder to be recognized or did you even kind of put that in a, a thought in your head?
3: You know, I think when we were young, we, um, that was a chip on our shoulder. Right, that we maybe weren't as acknowledged by the coasts. Um, I remember that we kind of took pride the first time we rolled up and played New Jersey, and we're like, Look at these guys with their sweatsuits and their hair slicked back. What is this? This is a punk, like, sure. Um, uh, you know, and it was silly. It was, it was young guy pride of coming from Kentucky. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I I'd always felt like we, I think a lot of bands from that area kind of, which is good and bad. I think it drove us to do some unique things and gave us some independence in the way that we approach things. But uh, um, often, I think a lot of bands felt they weren't heard by, you know, you had the coast bands. Uh, and of course, you had like the Midwest, like we think of Chicago. We weren't too far from Chicago, but that was a kind of a whole different genre uh, of Bands that were really popular at that time coming out. So, yeah, to answer your question, I, I mean, I think we did. I don't think it made us work harder, but I think that we took pride in um, who we were, being from that Midwest.
2: Sure, that makes sense because I, I do think that there is that notion. You know, everyone obviously calls it the flyover states for a reason, and I think it, no matter what happens from an entertainment perspective. Most people, you know, look to the, (laughs) the cultural, uh, you know, hubs of the country as opposed to like, Oh yeah, Louisville, like that's the center of, of, of where it all, where all is happening. But I just, like I said, I was so excited when I found out about it that I'm like, Oh my gosh. And like the diversity of all these bands too, was really impressive to me.
3: Oh, it was crazy. I mean, we grew up on some, um, you know, having a lot of unique influences. I mean, of course we had, the external influences coming into our record store, uh, at that time. But I mean, we had, you know, people that were doing a lot more kind of arty things. We had, you know, I grew up listening to two bands from Louisville, One was solution unknown, uh, which I mean, I just wore out. That was my like early teens, like following that band everywhere. And then I had this friend, Myron Hardesty, who was kind of the older kid by neighborhood. And, uh, he was like, you're ready for this now. And he passed me this uh, Fading Out uh, recording, which actually came out, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. They found, they put it out on, on I think, Drag City. Um, and, and I mean, I love loved it to death. You would not recognize, I mean, I don't know if other people would appreciate it as much as I did. But I just thought it was the best thing in the whole world. I still listen to it, and we actually covered. Uh, Endpoint did this seven inch of really bad covers, great songs, but we I don't know how well we covered them. And uh, we did one of their songs on that uh, on that seven inch. But yeah, man, they were it, it was it was a fantastic time to to kind of grow up in Louisville. And then when we were playing, you know, it's like there wasn't. We all had our own thing early on. So, you know, Endpoint was kind of your traditional hardcore band. And then we had Cerebellum that was really moving towards more of a DC, Chicago sound that, you know, evolved in the crane. And then, um, and, uh, my brain's going dead because the end of the day. Um, no problem. <laughs> oh my gosh. uh, Madmos, uh Anyway, sure. Daniels, <laughs> okay. yes, yeah. Drew Daniels, you know, you know, he went to the coast and did electronic music and like. So anyway, there was just all these really fantastic things we were having that time. It was really fun. It wasn't until later when iterations of each of these bands that were doing these things, you know, people started having their kind of collective um, started to develop these kind of independent scenes within this other scene in Louisville it was really great because everything was really smashed together so every show you know you would have bands of very different genres even up until it really wasn't until by the grace of God that we would have shows that was all hardcore bands on and that was really cool about Louisville and probably other many other Midwest scenes because we just had such few bands and you know some kids actually picked up the judge record and some kids picked up the you know this other genre of music and then so there there wasn't a choice but to play together and I thought that was really good for the listeners I think it was probably good for us too
2: sure sure absolutely yeah because it it does i mean everyone always you know looks back at their time of getting into punk and hardcore and been like oh yeah so many different bands you know played together just be out of necessity because you know there was the the scene wasn't as fully developed as it is you know now or even 10 years ago um but you know there is there is truth to it where it's like well yeah that <laughs> there weren't any weird band that fell outside of the ecosystem of what was considered you know rock or independent music do you kind of you know you just stuck to yourself and it's like yeah we'll play with a quote-unquote emo band and a hardcore band because it
3: all makes sense oh yeah i mean we had we i'm trying to remember all the bands but we had a, um endpoint had this record called Aftertaste and we did a record release show and we had to play two nights to be able to fill get everybody in and on that bill was like it was Endpoint. It was Rodin, and it was Spitboy, and I think it was Greyhouse, and uh, Rain like the sound of trains, and like it was just this crazy, awesome, you know, just mix of diverse bands, which I think, you know, that happened all the time back then, which was the coolest. Yeah, it's, it's it's really sad at my age. It's really hard to go to a show where there's you know. First of all, where there's sure more than three bands, but then when they all start sounding a whole lot alike, like it's just it's just hard to attend.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely. I I understand what you're saying. Um, kind of putting the, the focal point on you. Um, I know you were born in Louisville, and I'm kind of piecing this together, obviously, from other interviews that you've done. Um, and you're an only child. Um, the, uh, I, I identify with that as well because I'm an only child, so we stick together. Yeah, but, <laughs> right. The um, the city in general, like Louisville, has always struck me as a you know a, a Midwest vibe, clearly. But there is a ton of art and culture that exists in that area. Um, whereas most people in the Midwest are like, Oh yeah, like, you know, I live in Omaha, like, you know, even though there's a lot of good music in there, sometimes it's, you know, doesn't get focused on, um, when did you kind of notice that there was stuff happening, I guess, outside of the context of what, you know, maybe your, your peers were doing in, you know, elementary school or junior high and stuff like that.
3: Um, you know, it really wasn't. So you kind of, it's, you've asked kind of a complex question. So one, um, you're right in terms of Louisville is a really I believe it's a unique city of course I'm biased I spent most of my life there but even to this day like it's just it's exploded in terms of art in terms of like vegan restaurants we have this like vegan corner now where there's just like a, all these restaurants right there like there's I mean music there's wonder, I mean wonderful visual artists there's great beat poet it's just a really cool funky town and 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 that has all i, I think that's been the case for a long period of time of course it was a lot more gritty in the 80s um it could, because it wasn't cool you know to to the things that i guess had been uh, pejoratively called hipster now but that stuff wasn't as cool to craft and whatever uh so it wasn't accepted as much by the mainstream but i mean louisville has always been a really unique town um i think i first found that um through skateboarding right so i have found i was in probably i think i heard the music first right so i had a couple friends that were into you know my our paper boy had a mohawk and was a couple years older and um i was like what's that all about i was really disenfranchised i think there were some financial things that were happening to my family at that time that were causing some stress and really making me turn and turn on to kind of like uh, social class which led into kind of social justice issues um i was suddenly being exposed to things about racism i mean my, my dad was is a, a sweet person in many ways but also carries that kind of racial uh, i guess some bigotry right he's an old kind of country guy um but those things were also coming to the light. And then I was, I was enjoying um, – so I started some, – some kid in high school gave me music. You know, it was probably – I started listening. I had I, There was a friend, Christy Canfield, who in middle school started – I was really into heavy metal. So like proto – I mean early hair metal, not like Poison whatever, but like Shout Out the Devil and, and Rat and some of the kind of the earlier uh, hair metal bands – um, and that was kind of my freak. Always loved and still love to this day Ozzy Osbourne. It's funny, I liked solo Ozzy before I even knew what Black Sabbath was, Um, and so I was already trying to explore and find things that were different. I was under a lot of stress, just kind of bullied little kid, um, and then I found some other kids that were bullied that were kind of skateboarder punk kids, Um, and I found that I could... I just, you know, I felt comfortable in that group. And some of the kids were older, so it gave me some confidence. Um, And through that, I was exposed to things that were very different than my parents had uh, exposed me to. So my parents were both workaholics, both kind of white, middle class Christian folks, you know, and here I am hanging out in this. Um, kind of underbelly, I guess of Louisville, where you know, we 're hanging out with older kids in the eighties I mean they were which was scary at that time, but it was just such a stark contrast that it provided space to grow between, so we'd be hanging out with older kids and they're doing cocaine and you know, there's crazy fights at shows, and there's all sorts, of, and you're being introduced to different types of lifestyles. The first time I was introduced, knowingly to uh, people, to gay kids, uh, there were all these things that were happening all at once at a very early age that I think provided fodder for me to kind of reevaluate the way the world was painted for me by my parents, Um And through that, you know, we'd we'd look for every opportunity to find something different and unique within Louisville. And then, of course, a part of it, we started to specialize in ourselves. Like, oh, this is you know, which as we get older, we realize that we all like to be special. And whether you're a football player or a hardcore kid, it's real. We're really into tribalism and team membership. But that was the narrative that I painted for myself. I really wanted to. dig deeper into understanding and accepting other lifestyles
2: no that's, that's great I, I really i like how that, that picture that you painted because there definitely is uh, you know i mean no matter what parental situation you come into you're always going to have you know baggage that you have to shed whether it's you know uh, familial strife or whether it's you know upbringings views all that stuff it's kind of this mixture and you know sometimes you don't you are never given the ability to kind of question that, um, you know, usually obviously in your teenage years is that's when you start to you know yeah. bristle and push against it. But I just like that picture that you painted. Cause you know, there's, there's definitely nothing simple about, uh, all those things that you start to grapple with, but it's only through the exposure to the other side is when you start to be like, Oh, there's people that think differently. And there's people that like, like you said, you know, you, you started on this journey of, of, you know, kind of acceptance of the fact that, Oh yeah, there's a whole different lifestyle out here.
3: You know, there's there's two other things I want to add. One is that, you know, it wasn't like this smooth awakening. You know, I did a lot of dumbass stuff. I'm sure I, you know, was being called fag and beat up as a little kid. But at the same time, I probably used those words when I was 14, so I didn't know any better. And, I mean, it was a very clumsy um, learning process uh, because there's so many other competing factors being kind of a young male boy. But the other part of that is I think that by letting that sink in, I think that has really helped me. I'm I, like anybody else gets, I get fucking furious when I think of, you know, some of the things that comes out of, come out of people's mouths. And I sometimes have taken pretty hard stances, but it's also helped me understand that even folks that I don't agree with, um, do have a different perspective? And I think it's been very helpful for me on my personal life. Um, but it's also been helpful in um, in my work and, so basically, what I'm saying is that I think we've lost that. We lose that sometimes. We've, you know, punk has become so tribalized, and and people will argue vehemently that's the purpose of it. But I also think that, like, even undergirding punk, or is this the the this rebellious idea that of freedom that people are able to express themselves and the way that they live. And really that should only be a problem when it comes into contact of harming other people. Um, and it's really hard to swallow. You know, it's really easy for me. I live in a very insulated circle, you know, with some, um, and uh, we it's really easy to get uh, shit talking about people that maybe from a different political viewpoint or whatever, especially like I my old friends will do it, but I always have to kind of step back and remind myself that these people were shaped into that they're, those behaviors. They're not bad people. They just have they just sometimes do things that are harmful to other folks. Yeah. And I think that's really cool of what that, that's probably the most important lesson that I think maybe not I didn't get that from punk but I get it got it from my journey into punk
2: yeah no I really really appreciate that that uh, that button to that idea because yeah it's it's very simple to you know when you're whatever 14 15 years old to completely uh you know shut the world out that you don't agree with. And it's easy to exist like that. But then once you step out into the, you know, more adult world, you can still hold tight to your principles and everything else. But then you realize that there are other people that, you know, that aren't the enemy. They just have, you know, I, I always phrase it where it's like, I just feel incredibly lucky that I tripped across this thing known as, you know, subculture and punk and hardcore that introduced me to different ideas, but you know, not everybody, uh, had that exposure. So I can't fault them for that. I can't say like, Oh, you're wrong because you haven't been exposed to that. You know, it's just, it's a weird Yeah, it's a weird dichotomy, that's for sure.
0: In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD,
1: we explored Guy Love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place.
2: the uh you know you met you've mentioned in previous interviews that you were uh, you were primed for being bullied which i i I found uh, funny that you kind of phrased it as such um but you know most people look at the you know recorded output that you have and are like oh yeah like you know you can be on stage and kind of you know be confident in your own skin from that perspective. Um, but was there an element of like you know were you like kind of like a quiet kid growing up, or was you know did the, the bullies kind of identify that fact in you, or how did that uh, manifest itself?
3: Uh, I think that um, so I spent a lot of time by myself. So even to this day, I'm still a little awkward. I mean, I'm I'm pretty good with, in, in certain contexts, I guess. Um, I, but I don't know huh. so parents forgot a lot they worked very hard I was uh, spent a lot of time alone Did a lot of going home from school unlocking the door you know latchkey kind of stuff I was really into nerdy fantasy I remember as a little kid some Je- you know I, in my mind I think it's Jehovah's Witnesses but I don't know why they would have dropped this up. but some strange door to door salesmen were selling these records and one of them was the hobbit you know lp with like a little gatefold with pictures inside and i remember just being like ah listen to that i mean of course i love star wars i loved anything that i could do to escape so it further drew you know drew me away from um you know i wasn't great at sports uh my parents wouldn't let me have a mullet which i really wanted like a zipper cut because i was in heavy metal so of course that's like you gotta (laughs) have that yeah yeah had a pair of glasses that were Battlestar Galactica brand. I mean, come on. Like, it was uh, – and I was a pretty nice kid. I wasn't really good at um, doing the hierarchy game, I don't think. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't strong, especially as a middle schooler. I was kind of a pudgy little fella. And so, you know, it just was um, – and I was kind of a goodie. Like, I, I remember this kid was like, fuck you on the bus. And I was like, don't use that word. And he was – And I remember him saying, well, that's how you were born. And I was like, what? And I went home, and I was like, Mom, was I born by fuck? And she's like, oh, you know, and got me a book. You know, so, uh, you know, it really wasn't until I found that group of kids that, like, kind of tutored me into being a normal, confident kid. It really is. I mean, you know, I, I owe that a lot to Duncan, too. I think Duncan was a great friend of mine. Like, his, you know, he was a little wilder than I was, um, his parents had gone through a divorce. Um, he was living with his dad and he, you know, he lived in the basement, so he had some freedom there. And, um, uh, you know, we just, we had a great growing up together and I think that really kind of helped me figure out who I was so I could be more confident. And, um, you know, I had a, I had a good group of friends. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, that's really, I, I yeah, I like, I just, yeah, I, I really like the, the fashion in which you kind of lay it out. It's always, a uh, yeah, good job. It's like you've done an interview before, right?
3: No, I not mean, really. Maybe it's because, I mean, it's serious. I've been writing a paper all day, so maybe it's just like, but it's another topography to vomit these words. Yeah, uh, it's perfect.
2: Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so I guess kind of you know as you were you know growing up and and kind of wrapping your head around you know what the uh, the next steps were as far as the uh quote unquote life plan that you're supposed to head into um was there any notion of that or basically once music kind of came part of your ecosystem that was the primary focus or did you have you know the the kind of teaching aspirations that uh, you you know are currently presiding or where was your head at
3: uh, you know what I always um kind of had a focus on what I, I was always nervous about music. Um, and I think it was to the chagrin of some of my bandmates, you know, like um, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly cautious person, I think. And so I was always scared, you know, like I think I t- took one semester off of school um, to maybe do some touring or something like that. And like, I just couldn't go for it music wise. And so I was always in school, getting things, you know, doing what I'm doing, what I thought would also be helpful. I didn't want to put eggs in a basket, um, and I think we missed a lot of opportunities because of that. You know, I did. Um, so I, I was a peer tutor in middle school, and so at that time, I kind of was interested in kids with disabilities. Um, started doing some work, um, in college, like really early college, doing some respite work with families, doing some communication instruction with kids with autism, uh, and then started teaching as soon as I was out of college. And so, so I, I taught full time, I did, um, so it was crazy. This, I was even at an end point and We were like, you know, wow. driving up to Boston. We had a day off on a Friday. So we drive up to Boston or some 20-hour drive and get back just in time to play a show. And we do summer tours and winter break tours. Um, and then, I mean, I've been playing, I guess I've been in consecutive bands for about 30, God, over 30 years now. And so, you know, um, I've just been able to do that with, through my doctoral program, through, you know, through my professor work. Um, of course it diminishes as, as your jobs become more intense, but right. Right, you of might course. have less energy. But yeah, I've just kind of always, I've always loved music. I never want to stop. One of the challenges of being here, moving to North Carolina is that we're like, uh, don't have folks to play with. Um, by the grace of God, still doing some shows every now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that that's that's my biggest fear. Is like, oh, I'm gonna stop playing music. So I really,
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you just have, to push you pushed p- fifty. P- You just got to pick your spots now. And that's, I think that's what is so fun and engaging about the fact that, you know, um, this actually dovetails nicely into my next, next question where, um, you know, with, uh, as you started to, you know, really dive into independent music and, you know, you and Duncan Barlow were, you know, bouncing bands off each other and, you know, discovering everything, um, it, this it was obviously was a very fertile time for independent music and, you know, a lot of band starting and all that stuff. But discoverability was, you know, you reading thanks lists and, you know, looking at seven inches and going to distro tables and stuff like that. Were you just basically devouring everything that you possibly could get your hands on?
3: Yeah. And you know, I think in terms of experiences for sure. You know, one thing that I'm not really so when I was younger, a hundred percent. Going to record stores, trying to find you know, just, reading what as i got older my brain got filled with kind of half work career half music so i've never been a guy like i don't have a giant record collection i've got my favorite records right as um and and so but the experience is yes so it's like you want to go play here yes you want to you know I, like i traveled all the time like even when i wasn't touring you know i would get in the car from louisville and drive 13 hours at the New York City just to hang out with my music friends and spend time in the city and see what that's like like you know when we we're in college like what's really and I'm, this isn't as exciting as the punk side of it but again opening those doors to different environments and touring made me hungry to experience more of the world and so again like every opportunity to do fun things I did that, and that was kind of conditioning me through playing music. Of course, I still want to go to, you know, if I was in a different town, I wanted to go to the record store. You know, I've been a vegan for a long time, so I'm like, oh, where's the best vegan restaurants? I still, like, sometimes will play or even travel for work. It's conditional upon, like, is there anything really good to eat there? Um, Which is sad, a very sad state. But, um, yeah, I mean, I... Definitely early on, and and again, there were so I had we had, such, we had friends with such diverse tastes in Louisville that we were, lots of different things were were thrown at us. It's fun to have a couple, you know, growing up being a mostly hardcore bands or whatever that means, um, traditional kind of hardcore bands. I you know I didn't listen to a whole lot of that. I mean, I did and I still do, but not that's not the primary. You know, I, I really like more. DC kind of hardcore bands, and like favorite band of all time is probably Laughing Hyenas, you know. But um, I think it's just a result of coming from such a unique coming from going back to the first question, going back coming back coming from Louisville and having such a unique circle of friends.
2: Yeah, for sure, that makes sense. I, I do like I i like your description of the uh, you know kind of collecting adventures because it is. Uh, I think that's how most people that, you know, kind of came up with in the context of playing in bands, but not having any sort of idea that you can turn this into a quote unquote career. It's you, you're just like, well, yeah, I'm going to keep touring because like, you know, this is going to end. Um, but I, I don't know, I don't know when, but like, you know, I'm going to keep collecting these adventures, you know, I'm not going to well, stop.
3: We played the other night uh, in Louisville and I had to embarrass my because I was like, we did a self we did like a self-imposed encore because I was like, well, we know more songs. They're like, they're done. I was like, can we play more songs? They've got, they got started off the stage, and they're like, yeah, okay. All right. They got back up on the stage. I was like, let's keep going. I was like, you never know. This might be the last time we get to play. You know, and so it's, it's just going like that. You know, it's like, don't try not to plan that much. It's like, let's just keep, if there's an opportunity, I don't, you know, I don't care. Hey,
2: I'm going to interrupt the discussion of this particular show to tell you about another podcast. A friend of mine works on it. And uh, this seems extremely entertaining. So James Kennedy, for those of you that are super deep in the reality show ecosystem, he is on Vanderpump Rules and his podcast is called It's Not About the Podcast. So he himself is a DJ, kind of does that whole, you know, electronic music scene and he has discussions with interesting people like and I will be the first to tell you I've literally not heard of one of these people but this is of course like that's not my my scene per se so he's had like the blame heartthrob black elvis blk and legendary house dj dj irene so they're sharing music because after all that's what this show does we share music and then sometimes create live in the studio they have freestyle battles and they also play something called space trivia because apparently he loves space and wants to talk about aliens which is awesome. So I've checked out the show. It's super fun. It's, it's really uh, interesting to hear people kind of work in real time together and kind of create a song like that. That's a cool vibe, right? Whether or not you are a huge fan of reality TV or DJs or anything like that, it, there is something to be gained from listening to this show. So don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to It's Not About the Podcast on Himalaya, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or obviously wherever you listen to podcasts subscribe to it. It's fun. Like I said, a friend of mine works on it. It's enjoyable. Okay. Check it out. We're kind of focusing on, uh, and I apologize. I'm kind of, you know, jumping around here, but you know, trying to try to make it somewhat, uh, linear in fashion with, uh, with endpoint, it seemed like the emotional output was, you know, unlike most bands that kind of existed in the hardcore scene and honestly had encountered that point as far as the crowd was concerned. I presume a lot of the impact that the band had on you was, you know, because of that, like, was it, um, I guess, was it overwhelming for you? Like, you know, as you were kind of putting all of this out there and being really exposed and vulnerable, um, and then obviously getting the feedback from the people who were also expressing those level of emotions, um, you know, did, did you kind of feel that sort of. Uh, and not in a negative way, but just in a like, man, it is exhausting getting up there and like crying and then having people crying, <laughs> crying with me after the show and that sort of stuff. Or was it just all super exciting?
3: Um, you know, it was oh, like it was simultaneously wonderful, I guess, because you're getting feedback on something that is coming from you. You know, it, it's I guess you get that same hype. That you get when you create some sort of fantastic art piece that people respond to, and I mean, I know that it's not the same, but there's a little bit of that, and they're like, "Man, people connected tonight." You feel really good about that connection, right? But then, I think long term, it also, you know, is also really difficult. I felt, you know, I um, was depressed a lot. I was. Uh, not good to my body. There are periods of time when I was not eating a whole lot, which was weird. Um, on stage, I'd hurt myself a bunch. Like, I just kind of like, um, was under a lot of stress. I remember one semester in school, like, I had just totally freaked out. And, um, and it, you know, and it's complex in, the, in a young person's mind how all that's working I remember feeling like I was kind of haunted I couldn't snap out sometimes of depression I remember going to a psychiatrist at one point um, and I was just um, yeah you know it was wonderful looking back I and mean, being through it it's like man I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world I mean there's the, the connection there One, it, people from that time I feel like I was able to positively impact your lives even for a few moments or an hour during a show people felt some people feel very connected to that band. Um, I feel very connected to that band because it is such a, an intense time. Uh, It was such an intense time. It really bonded me closely to to some of my bandmates um, and the people from those times. That's the most, I know many of them still today um, I have a lot of good friendships from them. But yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. It was, you know, it kind of snapped I think we were really sincere, uh, but it really changed around the time this album, Catharsis, came out, and we were all kind of having a bad time. I remember we were playing in Chicago, and we all just kind of flipped out when we played, and it just felt really good. And then somehow from then on, it just, that just was kind of, the shows were fun, but they were also an opportunity to just kind of get everything out. Um, and then when that started changing for different people in the band, then it became a little bit different, and I think that's when endpoint started kind of fading, and we decided to break up. I don't know if that was a great answer to your question, but it no, was that.
2: It, no, no, I, I, it totally was because I think that uh, yeah, you you laid it out appropriately. So, <laughs>
3: <laughs> I just, like you 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 are being held up as this advocate for other people. I mean, I thought we tried to be that way. I mean, it's not like the songs were like, yo, bro- brotherhood. Like, I mean, there was a little bit of that at an early end point, but it really was about personal stuff. And I think for some reason, people really connected to some of those songs and it made us feel, there was a lot of pressure because you felt like you had to live up to those, but you're also an imperfect person, especially growing up in an imperfect context um and so you you know there were times in the band where our natural urges you know we'd be silly and say something dumb or or you know like i always worried about how people would view us or we i was was always worried that people wouldn't live we wouldn't live up to people's expectations and it was just you know it was kind of a bum out it wasn't really it's funny by the grace of god was kind of totally different we were less into ourselves um we were that was i mean there's a thread through a lot of those songs but in end point my lyrics a lot of that i was speaking to myself and by the grace of god i think we were i was trying to speak to other people i was older than my late 20s i wanted to positively impact other folks and so the audience changed. Um and I think that that there's a distinct difference uh for me in those two different bands that way.
2: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. The um you know as you were, you know, playing in in you know in point and then, you know, by the grace of God, you know, both of those like you know you're selling merch and you were getting paid to play shows and you know the business started to you know become a thing that you obviously had to you know consider and, and take care of did you ever care about that or was that something that you were like other people can take care of that i just don't uh, i don't i don't have a sense for it um how did that sit in your head
3: um yeah I, that wasn't me i'm not very i wasn't very good at that Duncan is really good at managing some of those things. We had a, a roadie for a long time. Who was like a manager. He was a manager essentially. Andy Tinsley at, during Endpoint. Like as long as people were, as long as we could play shows and go forward, like it really didn't. I wasn't very very connected to to the piece. Like it just like oh okay sure a cool shirt is not that'd be awesome. Like I yeah. I, I'm, I'm notoriously terrible at the details.
2: Got it. Hey, I mean, it's good that you know that because there are definitely people that feel, uh, you know, that they are inadequate there, but they also are just like, well, I, I guess I have to do this because, you know, I'm a working member of the band or whatever. And you know, Oh, I'll, I'll take care of the shirt designs. And then all of a sudden, you know, two days before tour, you don't have any shirt designs. It's like, Oh crap. I messed yeah, up. So
3: I, I will hold that to give that to Duncan. Duncan is the bat be- was the best when it came to, um, like shirt designs. Duncan was a good was 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 great at marketing the band. He really is a very a very connected, very thoughtful person like um he had a he had a good vision. He has a good he had a good vision for the kind of um not the aesthetic I think of, of, of those bands and same thing with Ryan so I don't know like you know I merged into the black bands in the 2000s and uh, and and Ryan has had, had an amazing sense of aesthetic and so he you know a whole different kind of feel but um, I, I you know feel like the sometimes the Tasmanian devil you know the little cartoon where he opens the box and blah, 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 it's, that's kind of me it's like put me on stage and alright I'll do my thing and Run around, and, but I'm not never really good at kind of the finances. Or um, I mean, I, we would have ideas. Especially, I was really, you know, like making lyric sheets, and you know, we need to dress up like this and do this, and like some of those things early, in, in the early days were things I get really excited about. That like, we should we could try this, um, but yeah, not overall, right? Not
2: not, not your <laughs> corner. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure.
0: Hey guys, it's Jack O'Brien, co-founder of Crack.com, and I host a twice-daily news... And Culture Podcast with the funniest person I know, Miles Gray. What an honor. Ah, uh, it's what an true, honor. Miles, please, tell, please tell them more about how hilarious I am. Don't tell them about my background in politics as a political operative or anything like that. Just keep going on about the funny. I wasn't going to. Okay, that's fine. Guys, you can come get caught up on what is happening without feeling the life drain out of your soul at the Daily Zeitgeist. You can find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are. Given away for free,
2: um, and kind of on that same point too. You know, once uh, once by the grace of God started to you know get formed, and clearly there was an agenda for the band, and you were able to you know take things a little bit more seriously because you were you know older and you had more experience and knowing how to you know maybe not play shows in front of you know negative 40 people um was there ever kind of a conversation of you know taking this quote unquote more seriously or being like you know a real kind of career band or was that um something that you know you guys just you know once yeah. inside with victory and did all that that it, it started to become more real or was it just kind of always like oh yeah one step and one foot in front of the other
3: yeah like that i think um at the end of end point there were some discussions you know because right at that time all these, really, all these bands were getting signed by A&R reps, like the kind of, you know, they got dropped immediately, but um, I remember we, people were, we were drawing really big shows, so people were interested in us that way, and so we had some discussions about what would that looked like, and again, we were really young.
2: Yeah. Well, to, to interrupt, to interrupt your train of thought, I'm interested in like, who, like, you know, what labels were like, you know, were you talking to like, you know, revelation and that sort of stuff? Or was it like even more, you know, weird with like major labels kind of sniffing around?
3: You no, know, I remember there was something with, the, um, I remember, I, I remember the show and the discussions, um, uh, Shit! Who was it? Who was signing, Was it Atlantic that was signing bunches of small bands at that time? It was it was one of the major labels, and sure. so there were discussions about um, what you know, what will we do? Should we go for you know? And, and at that time, unfortunately, it was also the, I mean, fortunately for me because I'm really happy with my kind of life choices, but the um, it was also that was at the time that when our band was under the most stress and we were getting ready to break up, and so that was the closest, you know, especially as so we did that last record, which, you know, none of Endpoint songs are, to me, they hold up emotionally, but they, you know, they don't sound the greatest, because our recording experience was not, um, you know, we could, we were just learning that craft, and it wasn't as accessible, you know, people couldn't do things themselves, like they like they do now, um, but, um, it was, you know, it was the last, kind of around the last record, Aftertaste, had a couple more poppy tunes to it, and it was like, um, but yeah, I, I don't, it was a small, um, point in time. And then from then on, I was like, here's what we do. You know, we play, I always knew that I was continuing to work in this field. Duncan was interested in going to college and, and working on his writing career. I mean, um, so we always knew, I think we always we wanted to do as much as we could, but I think we all, we always knew that we were not full time. Um, or at least I knew uh, that that would not be our major, Source of life um, uh, emphasis, I guess. so Duncan does, Duncan's always involved and in, with his writing and his other bands. Like he, probably he is, he is a musician, right? Whereas I am a guy that loves to play shows and loves being around people and loves hardcore and, or punk and music. But I'm the, I'm not a musician, and I don't see that as my uh, moniker or the the tag that you would put on me. Sure. Not on my tombstone.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that that makes sense. But I, I'm sure I, I'm sure it was interesting, you know, having that kind of focal point with the fact that, you know, you were putting out a record on victory, which, you know, at the time was arguably one of the biggest independent labels in regards to, you know, punk and hardcore. Um, so I, I'm sure in some respects there was a little uh, anticipation not so much on your end but uh, on other people's oh, yeah. ends, that there was like oh my gosh yeah. this is going to be a thing
3: yeah of course because we, you know, we want you know would more opportunities i mean when we signed to equal vision a black crossfolk oh that's awesome you know like we just thought it'd be a good opportunity and um, yeah it's always better to to go to a label that you have more opportunities and more exposure um, you can you know at that time you really like i said you needed better more money to be able to record um and so yeah we were always really excited about that and you know there were there was some riff with with, with um uh, victory at one point but i appreciate all the labels that uh continue to put out you know put out our records to give this a shot I mean, it was awesome that you know i like equal vision with black cross the t- we weren't consistent with the other bands we were doing and we were our songs had a billion parts and they're like dun, 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 like yeah there, yeah, there was challenging, yeah. It's like we knew that we weren't, I think they knew that we weren't going to sell millions of copies. But you know, the owner, um, Steve was like, you know, well, we just like what you said, what you say, and we like what you stand for. And it was so that was cool, you know. It's like, thanks, man. Steve, yeah. Steve, ready,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and, and then with your relationship with, with touring, you know, I mean, you, you did touring and you did a substantial amount of stuff with, you know, all the bands that you played in. Uh, how has your relationship been with touring? Like, did you, you know, enjoy it from the beginning and then grew to kind of, you know, get tired of it because it is, you know, a grueling way of life? Or has it always been um, something that you've enjoyed?
3: You know, I, early on, maybe the first couple, there were a couple tours that I didn't enjoy because we were young people and we would, people would just get so frustrated with each other. It's a bunch of strong personalities, but as I got older, um, I I enjoyed them a lot. I mean, I love. We went two years ago to Europe, and some of the other guys were like, "This is terrible. This is hard." And I was like, "No, I love it." You know, because there are a couple strengths that I have. They're kind of like superpowers. One is that I can sleep in a van no matter what's going on. So essentially, during the worst, something bad is happening, or we're stuck, or it's miserable outside. I'll just sleep. And then I'm, then I'm up and ready driving my bells crazy. Like, okay, let's go to the show. Let's do this. You know? And, um, so that's a superpower that I have. Um, the, uh, and now for me, it's just, again, it's like, holy crap. I get to play shows. Um, I get to go to other countries. I get to go to other States and do something that I really, really enjoy. So, I mean, uh, I love it. Now, and, and, but also note this, we never ever, I think our longest tour was like six weeks or two months maybe with Endpoint. And it was kind of broken in half. Um, I've, we've never done that type of touring in my whole life. You know, it's like four weeks, six weeks, and then we're done. Because again, I've always had school or work. And so for me, it's always been paired with a break from an even more stressful um position or, or, or work that has to be done so to me i love it now there's 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 been a couple crappy i was really i, remember I was really depressed and probably a pain in the ass in 1992 when we toured europe um again it was amazing because was the first time i'd ever been there but again it was like not a good emotional time for many of us in the band uh, but every other time has been pretty awesome
2: Nice. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. It's, uh, I know it's just such a, uh, fraught relationship with touring once it becomes more of a, like, I have to do this because it's my livelihood. And then, you know, it right. tur- turns into a job and then people's relationships kind of, you know, bounce in and out of it, enjoying it or whatever. So I was just curious, you know, since you've never <laughs> relied solely on the, uh, <laughs> the yeah, band being your, your focal point. You
3: know, it's funny. It's like, you know, I'm already this, uh, have, contact a lot of privilege in my life. Right. I'm a white male from a middle-class family, but you know, even in the punk scene, I, I've had privilege. Like I said, I, I selected to also teach and have an income. And like, so I didn't, I wasn't forced to have to do some of these things. Like I could always maintain it. It was always pleasurable. At least the majority of time it was pleasurable. It's things that I wanted to do.
2: Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, Black Cross was, uh, you know, another band, like you said, you worked with a, you know, very reputable indie label of Equal Vision and, um, uh, there was no, you know, uh, slavish devotion to, you know, playing, a, being a part of the music industry and like, all right, well, you know, it's been 18 months, we got to put out a new record or any, any of that sort of stuff. Um, but I presume it was really, really exciting to play with people that you've kind of existed alongside of in the scene. I mean, uh, you know, clearly you've played with Duncan for many times, but you know, playing with the, you know, Patterson's and all that sort of stuff. Was that just also another opportunity where you're like, Oh, there's no way I could say no to this.
3: Oh no. You know, that was, that was a different. So, um, so Ryan is Ryan's your, no, Ryan's maybe 40 now, 41. So he's not as young as you are. He, um, which is funny because you probably don't feel young. It's just that I'm starting to. Sure. Understood. (laughs) I'm creeping to 50. It's like, Oh no. Uh, So Ryan was younger and grew up in E town and then started playing more shows in Louisville and then had moved to Louisville. And we, you know, didn't always see eye to eye. Like, um, for, we didn't know each other that well. I just knew that he was a, a good player. And I remember there was like a crazy fest and we're walking back. I was like, you know, we, we should do a band together. And he was like, oh, okay. And, um, and then, you know, we sat down and practiced. We, I pulled, we had Tommy because Tommy had been in the, by the grace of God with me. And he also been in Amarok and had been at, uh, had been in, at that time. Maybe, I don't know if he was still in Kendall's or not. Um, and then, you know, we practice, and then Evan was at the house one day and, and came down and practiced bass. And then it just uh, um, so we kind of fell into it that way. I didn't know what it was going to be like to, to play with Ryan. Um, I doubt you know, didn't realize it would be such a gift. I mean, those guys together were monsters, right? They're able to just bang out songs and uh, and they pushed me in a whole different direction. I mean, those bands were really the first. There was a couple songs on the first record that you know was could be linked to oh this is kind of like hardcore kind of like stuff I'd done before but this was really you know lots of parts lots more kind of like Jehu influence you know it was a um, whole different time and so playing with those guys. again just loved it and when we when the bands would break up and there'd be a different iteration we were like "All right, let's do this let's keep going and I think it's because uh, we again we developed a great friendship Ryan is a fan Ryan well and both the brothers and all the other guys associated with the bands are just fantastic people and when I so Black Cross was going strong I decided to get married which meant I definitely did not want to be on the road all the time for long periods of time. And at that point we decided to keep it going, but it was also a catalyst for those two guys to kind of do Coliseum and to Young Widows, which was Breathe the Resist at the time. And so, because I couldn't do as much, those bands really started moving forward, which kind of launched those guys into their own trajectory um, of, of just amazingly talented bands. And but we kept Black Cross kind of as a backburner, kind of on the side. And that's when we decided to put out that last, last record on our own because we just thought it wasn't fair to, you know, we knew we weren't going to tour anymore. And so we didn't want to be beholden to, um, equal vision. Um, and we knew it was, I mean, they, you know, it was gifted that they, that they signed us. Um, but it wasn't, you know, we wanted to just do something ourselves and not feel like we had to tour and, and, uh, so that's where Ryan, who was running a label Auxiliary at the time, put that out. And it's still great. Like I said, we played our you know, so even when Evan stopped being at Black Cross, broke up, we kind of still wanted to play together. So we, I don't, I can't remember how long it was. I don't think it was even a year. And we're like, well, let's just do another iteration. And so <laughs> we got another drummer, Ben Sears, who was amazing. He did a tour with us and a European tour by the grace of God. Um, we got Nick to play bass, who is later joined Black Cross as a second guitar player, and then we we started Black God, and uh, we broke up and you know we just broke up this year, and that was really hard because I just really love playing with those guys. They're such sweet, smart you know, we've seen people and we've seen each other, you know, for Ron and I have been together now playing, it was for 17 years. And so we are able to see each other grow as musicians, but also as people. And it was a pretty powerful experience.
2: Yeah, no, it's really cool. And I I like that, you know, the kind of generational, um, you know, gap. Cause when I say generation, I mean like, you know, cause I view like four years in punk and hardcore as different generations. (laughs) And so it's cool when people, that you once you know like looked up to that you can kind of play and creatively uh you know bounce ideas off each other where it's just like oh yeah like i like your band and it you know it goes both ways where it's like you like the music that the younger people are playing and then the younger people also like the music that you've played and it just kind of it works in that really um you know fun environment as long as everybody obviously gets along
3: (laughs) oh no of course
2: yeah um the, uh, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, like you, you mentioned before we started recording, you know, you moved to North Carolina and, you know, you're, you're doing, uh, you know, a lot of research as a professor and everything like that. Um, you know, was, was that a difficult move for you just because, you know, you've been with Louisville for a very, very long period of time and, um, you know, that's part of your identity and everything like that. Not like you lose that component of you, but, uh, you know, has that been uh, an adjustment, I presume?
3: Yeah, you know, I thought it so yes initially like it was really scary so the position came around a year before um I was I was sent a letter a, solic- a solicitation from UNC Charlotte to apply for the job um and I didn't apply um and then the position wasn't filled and the reason I didn't apply is I you know I, I was happy at the University of Louisville I had so much going on I mean I feel like because I was in that town so long any any. Definitely, any boy of a certain age. Like I feel like I had met them before. Or, you know, they had been at some show or at least because there was the shows were there were so many shows in the early days. They were so big. It's like you go into a coffee shop, you know, people. It was just really. It, it was a really comfortable place to live. Um, it wasn't until the second year solicitation that I decided to apply for the job. And again, I think it came to this place of you know what I need to grow. I need to continue. Um, music has always pushed me to grow, but my job um, had been uh, uh, had been great, but I think I've been successful at my job. And I think of, well, gosh, I probably got 20 more years until I can stop doing this work. And if I kept doing the same thing at the University of Louisville in that job, then I wouldn't grow in that area. So I, I've kind of reached a pl- point in my life, I think, where my work with people with disabilities and research in that area is, is equitable with the other parts of my life. Um, and well, not including my wife and family, but they were willing to come with me. So, um, yeah, it it is hard. You know, you go back and you're like, Oh, I miss it. And like, I know that right now I could probably go back to Louisville and find some folks to play with and maybe do some music and that would be awesome. Um, Whereas here in North Carolina, it's like, oh, it's a whole different scene. It doesn't have the same type of scene. Um, so that's that's kind of sad. But the familiarity, we were back over we Christmas. And for some reason, I, I just I felt okay, like, yeah, it's the right time to move and go. And, we're, and we go back, we, we go home a lot. Um, it's not far, it's a direct flight. You know, we'll go home several times a year and go to the same haunts and see people that I know and love. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't that tough. That's cool. I, That's, yeah. I, I, it was tough to make the jump, but now that I'm here, I'm not regretting it. I don't I don't feel necessarily homesick. Now, it's only been six months, but, um, you know, a lot of my older, my closest, the Patters, Ryan's still there, and a couple of Myron, the guy that got me into Funk Rock, is still there. And there's still a lot of people that are there. Uh, but Duncan, you know, I, I only got to see him a couple times a year anyway because he lives in South Dakota. Uh, another friend of mine, Peter Searcy, you know, he moved to. Atlanta. So they, the people that I saw all the time when I was younger are, you know, are, have already had already left the town. So it's all right.
2: No, it's cool. Uh, I, yeah, I, I it is complicated when you have lived in a place for such a long time and you have so many roots and then, you know, to to feel that out. And it's like, but yeah, it is. You always got to turn those pages because otherwise yeah like you were mentioning at the very very beginning before recording it's like yeah if you stay too stagnant and there's not enough change then yeah you could just get complacent and bored and uh, at the end of the day nobody wants that
3: <laughs> no you know i attribute like the longevity of playing music to probably me and ryan and then you know it's like duncan had moved away and it was like uh what do i do <laughs> i can play a couple notes on the guitar and i did a couple other bands like we did a band called al shia that was really fun with some guys but it was kind of short-lived and i did a band with my wife called minnow we put out a couple of records and that was really strange uh and short-lived but with some really fun people um, but in terms of like a, a heavy kind of pounding band it wasn't i didn't you know ryan and evan forced me to sing different ways to uh you know, up until it, I hated the studio and, and, point and by the grace of God, I didn't feel confident. I hated my voice. It really wasn't until those guys really taught me to be comfortable in my skin, which is really, um, which, I mean, I, I still can't believe It's all it's almost like I had two punk careers, like the po- the pre 2001 with all the, by the grace of God, endpoints, all that from 80 until then. And then from 2001 until, now it's like I had all these other bands that were a whole different, you know, led by different musicians that brought different things to the mix. Totally. Yeah. That's, totally totally exciting. Lucky. I'm the luckiest <laughs> guy in the world. That, that's, I, I'm, that's, I'm, luck- I'm I, just very lucky.
2: Yeah. If you just, you just happen to trip on some people to play some cool music with. It's great. Yeah. Um, well, dude, thank you so much, Rob. This has been really fun for me and I've, uh, you know, been a fan of your music for quite some time. So this was uh, this is a treat for me. So thank you.
3: Oh, I appreciate that. I'm glad Josh put in contact. This is amazing.
2: Thank you, Rob, for that great discussion. I really, really enjoyed his uh, perspective on, you know, teaching and, you know, bands as a living. Like, that's just, that's a subject I will never grow tired of talking about because I think so many people uh, over the years have approached playing in bands in such different manners. And I just, I, I love that discussion. So, Anyways, next month, the entire month of March is dedicated to the city of Seattle and people who have existed in and around the Seattle, you know, hardcore and punk and whatever you want to call it scene, the independent music scene, as it were, uh, I'll bury the lead here by saying that I did not get Ben Gibbard to come on the podcast. Granted, I didn't reach out to him, but you know, that's, uh, that's some people just automatically assume Or it's like, oh yeah, yeah. And if you're like, oh, you're missing some people. That are like, you know, obvious, obvious people to speak to. I probably have spoken to them already. Like, oh, John Pettibone. Like, Dive back in the archives. I've already spoken to John. So anyways, these are four brand new guests uh, that have never appeared on the show and are either have come from that scene and have, you know, moved on as far as like moving to different places or whatever. But these are people who have all been entrenched within the uh, the Seattle hardcore scene, old, new and everything else in between. And next week's guest is Dan Gallucci, who is the guitarist for Emergency Devils. He also played in Modest Mouse for quite some time, also played in Cold War Kids is a a podcast producer extraordinaire and we had such a good conversation. I loved it. I think we could have talked for probably like two plus hours. It was really, really insightful and fun. So that's what we got next week. And like I always tell you, and I truly do mean it. Please be safe. Everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw podcast network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.